You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 58 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website. Our episodes are also available on our own Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman. And with me, like an ancient Sith Lord you just can't leave in the past, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. Talking about Lost Tribe of the Sith again in some form. It's always good to have you here, my good friend, my good man. How have things been for you lately? Uh, pretty good. I mean, still just working our way through the school year, hoping that May comes quickly, or spring break comes quickly, or perhaps just President's Day comes quickly. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Yeah, you know, I've been uh, reading Revan myself uh, after getting through Scoundrels yet. haven't got the uh, advanced copy of uh, The Last Jedi yet, so I took that moment to kind of Catch back up, man. I am enjoying this book. I cannot wait for uh, when I get finished and we have a chance to talk about it. It should be for an interesting uh, discussion there. I will say, um, uh, speaking of, of waiting for the breaks and everything like that, I guess I do have one piece of good news that I can add, uh, and that is that I was selected as one of eight teachers in our school, the first school in the county to do this, where they're actually putting forth the money and such so that starting in March – we will have a class set of iPads to use. Um, they went with people who had master's degrees and that sort of thing, which is what mine's in, and found others who were tech savvy. And our principal's been fighting for more technology in the school for a very long I mean, even before this principal, people were fighting for it, but this one's really been pushing. So we have that good news here. It's just, you know, be nice if time would speed itself along to the end of the school year so I can get some timeline time in and such. <laughs> Now, we also had a contest that we recently had. Nathan, you have more on that, right? Yes. We were giving away a hardback, uh, blue original version copy of Heir to the Empire. This is something that had been in my collection for quite a while. Uh, it was actually the second of my three copies of Heir to the Empire. Uh, when I first started reading them, I picked up Dark Force Rising in hardback and Heir to the Empire in paperback because I was fairly young at the time. It was sort of the uh, please, 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 dad, please, mom kind of thing. Um, I wound up eventually, while I was in college, getting a gift of the hardback version of it, and then many, many, many years later, wound up picking up a signed copy, uh, then of course the 20th anniversary, I mean, so I got all kinds of different copies of this book sitting around here, and decided to take that uh, gifted hardback that is very nice condition, uh, but right now was somewhat redundant, and give it away. So we decided to do that through the show, through the show's Facebook page, and uh, for a couple of weeks people could enter through email based on instructions on the Facebook page, and now we have a winner. Uh, Daniel Contreras of California is the winner of that one, so congratulations, Daniel. And also we have a new contest picking up here. I wasn't sure if there'd be enough interest in this, but I found another copy sitting around that was somewhat redundant, uh, but still great condition, and I thought, you know what, let's ask on the Facebook page. Would anybody actually be interested in a contest to win an original hardback copy of The Crystal Star by Vonda McIntyre? <laughs> I, I can see why you're a little hesitant there. 
Yeah, and it's sort of one of those things that gets a lot of, uh, it, it just kind of gets the bad press, it gets beat up a lot, but I mean, it's another early book, so 1994, so a lot of people who got into Star Wars reading later have only probably seen this in ebook form or in paperback and such, so I said, you know what, let's put it out there, and enough people were interested, so that will be our contest this time around, folks, so keep an ear out, when this episode releases on the Friday of this week, you will find a post posted on Facebook giving you instructions of how to enter for a chance to win that original hardback copy in great condition of The Crystal Star. Bear in mind, however, that make sure you follow the instructions. We had some people get knocked out of the running this time because the instructions were very simple. Subject line, heir to the empire. Message body, give us your mailing address in case you win so it can be mailed out. We had people sending email addresses instead of mailing addresses. We had some sending just, you know, hope I win the book, which is wonderful, great expression of a of intent and yet no emails in there or, or no uh, mailing address in there so it wound up being narrowed down somewhat before doing the uh, the random drawing there so keep an eye out facebook will have the instructions up there uh, on the same friday this episode is released and just like with air to the empire probably run it for i guess two weeks until uh, we wind up drawing a winner a winner but you'll always know on the Facebook page, how much time is left, because I'll post little notices so that you don't wind up uh, missing the deadline without realizing it. Winner, winner, crystal star dinner. Nice. Yep. And uh, we got it's some surprising more. to see that more people are actually interested in that. I mean, you know, it does get a lot of bad press from the fans. I mean, I I, I don't know. I look back on that one. I don't remember being that bad. It, that's the one that gave us Beldorum, the Jedi hut, Dark Jedi, right? Well, it gave us, you know, it gave us the the Hethrier and such. It gave us Waru, the anti-force being and such. Oh, uh, yeah, was Waru. Be- now, was Beldorian that, or was Beldorian the one from Planet of Twilight? It's been I think you're right. I think it was Planet of Twilight that Beldorian was in. Yeah. Waru. Yeah. Waru. Yeah, is- I, I now remember why so many people give this book such a hard time. Oh, yes. Yeah, but I've got a few more things we'll be giving away. I've got uh, the comic pack with my story in it. i got a few of those back from when they first came out that I've been sort of hoarding and waiting for a chance to give away, and a few other things. Along the way, I think I actually have an early print uh, full run of the original six-issue Dark Empire series that is a redundant part of the set right now. So I'm kind of digging out and seeing what's there, and then what's there, I'll uh, probably wind up giving away the stuff that I decide not to you know, sell off and such to buy more stuff. So with that, though, uh, we kind of bantered a bit here. Uh, let's get into the main topic. So, Mark, what are we talking about this time? Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we discuss John Jackson Miller's comic addition to The Lost Tribe of the Sith, Spiral. Consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, and fans of all generations, because here we go. Spiral. Five issues, and we're going to go ahead and tackle these one at a time, and we'll go ahead and start with the first one here. Uh, and it's got a really cool cover. We got uh, Miller, Muti, and Baldassini are our uh, main three creative powers here, with Exiled to the End of the World. I, I actually, I gotta say, I kind of like the cover here. Uh, when I when I get into the comic, it kind of reminds me a lot of Avatar, the last airbender, the cartoon series. Um, you know, I, something about the way that the boats are designed, and 
we get some masks and stuff like that and some of the things. There were, there were a lot of things that kind of reminded me of that, and I, I kind of like that because I like that, that cartoon show. Yeah, I'll say the cover art on this is pretty striking most of the time. Um, it it really doesn't give you much of a hint of what you're going to see unless you've already read the story, and then you're kind of like, oh, that's what I'm seeing on the cover. But yeah, I think the cover art, which was by uh, Paul Renaud, turns out really well. Unfortunately, while this does have John Jackson Miller writing, which usually is very good news, um, the artist on the interior art really bothers me on this series. I don't know why that is. I mean, they're competent enough, I suppose, but it's the same artist, uh, Andrea Muti, M-U-T-T-I, who did the art for Knights of the Old Republic War. And in a sense, that's what this series is. It's the Lost Tribe of the Sith version of Knights of the Old Republic War, in that we had a series that ended well on its own. Knights of the Old Republic ended well on its own. Lost Tribe of the Sith, the ebooks, and eventually the final story that was placed into that collected story's pandemonium, it ended well on its own. And now it's, hey, let's make a comic miniseries and release it as an unnecessary end cap to the overall series. And while this one, I think, at least added something to the mythos of Lost Tribe of the Sith, uh, I give John Jackson Miller credit for being able to take a story that was essentially complete and add a new layer to it and make it feel as though this may have been part of some broader plan all along. Nazi Old Republic War left me feeling like there was no need for that story to have existed. Um, the artwork did not catch me any more than the artwork in this did by the same artist. And I recall thinking with Knights of the Old Republic War, just why? I mean, did we need a story to allow all of the fans out there who've been trying to make canonical costumes of Mandalorians with lightsabers uh, to be able to do that? The Mandalorian Jedi type thing? I mean, did we really need a story in which uh, the Mandalorians are portrayed as... One, being okay with the Jedi in some respects, and two, somehow being fooled into thinking that someone pouring soup on their head is a deadly disease? Um, Knights of the Republic War just, ugh, was bad. And I actually felt that way about this until rereading it. Turns out that Lost Tribe of the Sith Spiral has more layers to it than I expected, more hints in the first issues to what comes in the later issues than I expected, but when reading these individually as they came out, I didn't catch a lot of that. And yeah. I really felt like this was another unnecessary ending that put a little bit of a, a stain, in some respects, on the other stuff, because I felt as though the characters were mostly one-dimensional, didn't seem to have a whole lot of depth. I mean, they don't have a ton of depth, but they, they seem to have less depth than I would give them credit for now. So when I finally went through and reread them, actually today before recording, I reread all five in one sitting. It's a much better story. So I, I find that my opinion of this is shifting away from just being, oh, it's another Knights of the Old Republic War, but I'm still a little torn on it. But definitely the artwork is one of the things that tears me away. Cool cover artwork. Uh, some of it, in fact, you sit it side by side and it connects to make a bigger picture uh, somewhere, or at least it looks like it could. But man, man, uh, not so much with the interior stuff. I would say the, the interior thing, the thing that throws me off with the artwork is the eyes. It's like every set of eyes is really big like every time they're open they're just wide-eyed uh you know we got some characters in here uh the death spinner when i can't remember there's somewhere they, they give him his full name parlin parlin is it parlin yep. yeah parlin spinner and then we got takara hiltz who's actually the daughter of the grand lord uh you know and i like the fact that you know we're seeing some of the cultural things like all the glass swords and the little knives and stuff that they've got there being used and all that and we get to Lord Hiltz and he's, you know, checking out one of the tapestries and stuff. I, I, I just 
is the theme from the book, the uh, collected tales, just kind of carried on? You know how how Hiltz is being the scholar and all that, and how he's talking about power and research and what it takes, and and you know how the knowledge of what they were is really important. Uh, you know, really cool little aspects, and I like that a lot. But then we get to uh, was it uh, Ilania? How do you how do you say it, Nathan? I'm gonna screw it up. So I've always said. Iliana, I believe, because I think it's Ileana. meant to be the same pronunciation as uh, the Russian name. Okay. Well, Iliana was kind of a pleasant surprise. I wasn't expecting her to be so tall. I mean, granted, they did always talk about her being more the buff one, but I really liked seeing her and Hiltz come to life on the page. That was really cool overall throughout all of the arcs. Uh, but it was funny, though, how, you know, uh, Spinner, he, he ends up getting himself into a position where he's now being confronted by Lord Hiltz and all that. And then Takara shows up, the mom's there, and he's talking about exploring a new frontier and that Spinner's just the type of person he needs to put in charge of something like that. <laughs> yeah, it starts off a little odd. I wasn't quite sure where they were going to be going with this. You've got Takara Hiltz, the daughter, and she is essentially a constable now, but she's not getting any special treatment from her father uh, for various reasons, you know, just being able to not be a target and such, it being sort of a meritocracy, you have to earn your way up and earn your respect and such. She apparently has had previous run-ins with Parlin slash Death Spinner, and at first we don't quite get who this guy is. We'll wind up finding that essentially there was a point at which there was a rebellion of one human family within the Sith, the Lost Tribe, who tried to steal the Omen and try to find some way to get back into space, and they were stopped cast out and became the first human slaves of the rest of the Lost Tribe, as opposed to Kashiri slaves. And one of the things they were forced to do was essentially keep spinning rope, with the idea being that they are they're spinning a rope that could reach from uh, Kesh into the stars. It's sort of their constant punishment. But even through the time of Rot, they kept doing it, um, which makes him sort of this sp the last member of this spinner clan, if you want to call it that, family line. And he's sort of he's sort of unique in that his family was Sith and was cast out as opposed to being someone uh, who was always a slave or whatnot. But yeah, he just basically decides he's going to kill Hiltz, and it doesn't quite work. Takara winds up catching him because she's there instead. It's a trap laid for him. It's a trap! Uh, a Sith trap! And they wind up, uh, supposedly he's going to be sent off um, to uh, the other continent, only to wind up finding uh, Alanciar only to wind up finding, wait, that's not where he's going. They're actually going to the Southern Pole on something that a, a Hiltz knew about, or at least had hints about, but he wasn't telling Spinner what was going on. Spinner winds up essentially throwing an odd line of, hey, you may stay here and this will stink for you, but I'm going to someplace special to start anew. And, of course, by hearing that, Takara winds up stowing away aboard the ship, so they wind up together when they get to, I guess it's Eshkreen, I think you're supposed to say it, um, this South Pole with the secret society of the so-called doomed. But I'll tell you, until we got to the end of the second issue, I wasn't quite sure that I was going to enjoy it at all. It just kind of felt like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> we, we, we get their one-dimensional characterizations. We got that. That's one thing I think that this series suffers from by being comics instead of being prose. You don't give much dimensions to the characters until finally at the end of issue two, that's when things really start to heat up because we find that on this southern pole, there is a colony of non-human, non-Kashiri. I mean, heck, one's even a, a, a being from Sky that we haven't yeah. really seen much of since the Marvel series in the first annual of that. And at that point, the question is raised, who are these people? What are they? 
Um, I don't know. It, it definitely started off slow, but oh, yeah. once you get to issue number three and really the last page of issue number two, that's when it really starts to um, to kick up steam. Here. Well, it definitely piques your curiosity. By the last page, I'm like, okay, who are these guys and what do they have to play into things? But I got confused the first time because, you know, as they're unloading everything off of the boat that they came to this continent with, you know, uh, Takara, she just decided we're going to steal the boat, you know, and she's in the middle of running up the ramp and you hear mutiny and she turns around and says, what? And, you know, the, the scene happens so fast. It's literally one panel on the bottom and it's got the guy, the captain going, Spinner, I knew you were trouble the second they sent you to me. And he's all, call the guards on the board the ship. We got some slaves to kill. And you notice that Spinner's standing next to two other guys, and they're holding their knives towards him. And I, I missed that the first time. And you hear everyone yelling, and suddenly Takara turned around. And she's like, blast you, Spinner. You stole my idea. And at first, I'm like, what is she talking about? Because I thought Spinner was with her. I missed that, that in the bottom of that, he's holding a knife on it. So they end up get running, the two of them together, kind of running from the group of everybody. And they stumble across this this bluff, and there's these giant bones sticking up through the ground. And that, that's, as Nathan was saying, some of these references that, you know, I missed too on the first time. Because there, there's all these things that are shown, but it's not explained until later. So reading it one at a time, yes, you absolutely don't get as much out of this as you do once you have the full arc. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember thinking there were a lot of things I was curious about. And then the next issue came and I read about it. And I was like, OK, I'm still a little more curious. And then by the time I got to the end, they gave us a bunch of stuff. But I, I didn't sit down and reread it all until till earlier today and then it was like oh okay then the bigger picture started to fill in I was like, okay now this makes a little more sense and, and yeah you know as nathan said you do have a hard time getting into the pros of the characters when it's in the comic form i mean it's it's one of those things unless you have something that's already built up on these characters which aside from vanner and his wife you really didn't most of these characters all knew just to this and that that's a, that's a hurdle you have to overcome and by the time you get to the end of it, you know, you got that that whole aspect of the doomed. But in the single comic, one of the things I want to touch on before we jump into number two is that there is the words to the vile section in the back. And there is a slaves no more. The inglorious path and glory and glorious destiny of the lost tribe of the Sith. And it talks about the testament of Vanner Hiltz was delivered by the Grand Lord to the tribe's leadership just after his return over the sea from an Al Alanciar. And approximately 2,025 years after the arrival of the Lost Tribe on the Sith. This is the uncensored version, which the Crushy never saw. Varner with an R and I'm calling him Vanner, huh? And Crushiri instead of Crushy. Because I'm terrible like that. Cashiri. Yeah. Cashiri. So, yeah. so yeah, it's one of those cool things that they, they put that in the back there. It's an interesting little thing that you can read up on and, and, and get some little depths to it. Kind of cool. Gives you a little background on, on Vanner himself or Varner himself. Yeah, I think I jumped ahead, actually. I was thinking it's issue number two that ends with the doomed appearing. It's actually issue number one that ends. It just feels like it's been dragging a little bit more. Um, but no, that actually, that, that last section there is something that's led to a little bit of confusion because the opening page, or I guess the inside cover, says this story takes place approximately 2,942 years before Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which would mean that this story is set in 2,974 BBY. However, if you look at that Slaves No More thing, it says that it was put together uh, 2,025 years after the arrival of the Lost Tribe on Kesh, which would mean 2,975. Now, 2,975 was when Pandemonium takes place. This seems to be fairly soon after that, and to make matters a little bit more confusing on his website, 
Uh, John Jackson Miller has said that uh, by setting the story of Spyro one year or less after the ending of Pandemonium, blah, 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 blah. So we've got this question of whether or not this is in 2975 or 74. Um, being a year or less and Pandemonium already being in the other year, I would say it's probably early in 2974, and that would certainly fit with the inside cover information there, which is not necessarily flawless, right? Because we've got some, some confusion about that with Dawn of the Jedi sometimes. But I don't know, it just, it's one of these things where it would have been maybe nice to have something a little bit more specific being told officially as to when this is going to take place. And you mentioned how the artwork in issue number one has that moment where, you know, there's sort of two mutinies going on at the same time, and it's hard to tell what exactly is happening. What really gets me is the end of issue number two. Um, but when we have the uh, secret weapon that the Doomed have been holding on to that turns out to be the Obliette with uh, uh, Lord Draper inside... Uh, He's been, he's carried it, Spinner has carried it all the way from where it was hidden, all the way onto a ship, and the ship, of course, being tossed about by the water and such, and he takes a, a, just one, basically a hammer and chisel to it, hits it once, and the thing just explodes, and later they say, well, the reason why we can't put him back in is because it's been basically just blown up, it's, it's in too bad a shape to be able to be used to hold Lord Draper anymore, and I'm thinking, what the hell did I just see? He took a hammer and chisel <laughs> to it, and that made it blow up? I am Thor! Exactly. Something seems off. And that's one of the things with this art style, is that there are times when the art style isn't clear. Like, I'm good on stylized art style. Again, I'll say it again. I like the art style of Underworld the Yavin Basilica, which is a very uh, odd art style for a Star Wars comic. But this art style needs to make what's happening in the story clear, and that's where I think this series somewhat suffers by it being, I mean, by it being a comic and not having an artist who is necessarily as fluent, I guess, in the way of storytelling here. I mean, it reminds me of, I mean, really a lot of things John Jackson Miller has had to deal with because here is someone who writes in big arcs and, you know, this one somewhat suffers because it feels like it's kind of an attachment to the previous arc rather than being part of the broader arc itself, that it doesn't feel like it was necessarily in the plan to begin with, like Knights of the Republic War was. But if you look at it, as soon as we get past the original Knights of the Old Republic, he's constantly being saddled with artists that have us going, well, you know, you look at Knight Errant art, you look at Knights of the Old Republic War, you look at this. It seems like after that, there's always an artistic challenge, so to speak, to getting across what Miller himself has written here. I mean, maybe I'm reading well, too much. I had a, no, I think you're dead on because I had a hard time when it came to Vector because of the artists they had for KOTOR. It was like the the art styling was so exaggerated that I, I it I had a hard it was the plot alone that carried me through that I, I could not stand the art, um, but again getting back to the art in episode one and they carried it on in, in two the bows used by the doomed uh, they look like glass but they also kind of glow red I, I, that's very interesting um, but the doom themselves is an interesting thing and and I did find that in episode two the interest there for me was right off it starts out. With kind of like their mantra, war is a lie. There is no defeat. There is serenity. There is no victory. There is death. Through power, I am enslaved. Through the force, I am doomed. And that is from the code of the doom, date unknown. And then it, it starts out in, in Spinner and Takara are walking through and they're, you know, walking through the city of this place and they're talking about, uh, something that they're picking up. Uh, she goes, uh, he, uh, okay, Spinner looks over at, he, he sees a, a Rodian and a Twi'lek 
There's an Ithorian. There's a Wookiee around. And he goes, what are these things? And she goes, I don't know. Other species landed with the human castaways, the tribe that founded the tribe. But my dad said they all died out. I wonder if they're related. And then uh, Spinner says, something else is strange. The dark side is strong here, but not in the people. I don't feel anything from there. And then she says, it's so cold. I'm surprised anyone can feel anything at all. But I know what you mean. It's like they're a null. And I found that was kind of interesting. The way that their philosophy of the doomed and the way that these guys are feeling them comes across to their Sith percent uh, perceptions. Very, very interesting. And that, as I was reading these in civil forums, I just kept getting more interested, more interested. There wasn't quite the delivery, you know, until I got to the end of it and I reread it all. Then, then it was like, oh, okay. This is definitely something the more you read the arc, the more you get out of the story. Yeah, very much so. And by reading this particular story, we also get uh, more out of, again, the original Lost Tribe of the Sith stuff. Because this is the issue that you know kind of ties it all together. Thanks to Book of Sith and whatnot, you know, we've got a little bit more lately about the Hundred Year Darkness and the Battle of Corbos, right? Which had the Leviathans that wound up showing up again in a Jedi Academy Leviathan, the comic series and such. Um, and they're telling us about how, you know, Karnas Murr and Remulus Drapa and Zoksan, or however you're supposed to say her name, uh, they were fighting against the Jedi. They wind up being sent away. They wind up in the Stygian Caldera and ruling the Sith. Um, but apparently Drapa uh, was not content with ruling the Sith themselves, so he winds up leaving, and sure enough, as he's leaving, he's spotted by uh, Jedi ships. They wind up battling and crashing down, or at least one of the ships winds up crashing. One of them apparently lands, we find out later, but crashing down on Kesh, and they keep fighting it out to the point where, basically, uh, the landscape is being destroyed, and it's only through being willing to sort of put aside their conflict, working together to try to survive, that they will not only survive, but keep the planet from being itself ravaged. And that gives us this concept of the doom. So, I like the fact that this whole, the, the first curse, they call it, the whole issue of uh, the protectors and the destroyers are actually you know, or the destructors, not destroyers, the destructors, that they're based on something real when it could have just been, you know, mythology in a sense that the Sith co-opted, and it gives us a background for these doomed. I'm not sure the doomed would have been nearly as interesting if they didn't have that other angle to them, like if they were just maybe cast off slaves or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure that would have been as interesting, and it winds up playing into this background. Now, I'll be honest with you, I didn't actually think when first seeing them that we were going to wind up with something quite as time-bending, in a sense, as what we wind up getting by the end of issue number two. I was just expecting, oh, well, that's the background of this new faction, so now we know about them, they can play their role in the present day. I didn't expect anything um, from particularly early to wind up playing into it, but of course, by the end of the second issue, we're finding out that this supposed weapon that was hidden away, once Spinner steals it and tries to open it, it's not a weapon per se, it's the Sith Lord, Remulus Drapa, who is now back, apparently thanks to being locked in his own obliette, which should have led to his death, but uh, Sorza's Sin, who we learned about in Book of Sith, gave him this amulet that was supposed to, like, screw up his spirit or something, and instead he was able to use it to preserve himself while he was in stasis, or whatever you want to call it, inside the obliette. So we end issue two on a really high note, um, not artistically, because Drapa looks really freaking goofy when we see him for the first time. 
Um, but we get that high note of we've just taken this up a notch because not only do we have this third faction or third uh, culture involved, aside from just, you know, the two different continents. Now we've got this southern pole sort of continent thing going on. But we also have Draper, and he's emerging in front of our heroes. Unfortunately, as we move into the third issue, we, we all of a sudden, oh, well, they're just captured. They're just being held in the cargo hold of the ship. That's it. Oh, why'd you let, let me, why did I uh, let her live? Oh, because she's the princess of the of the tribe. Yeah, any confrontation, you know, it, it struck me as, I'm not sure that it really bothered me when I read them as individual issues, but the jump from issue two to issue three when reading them as a whole is the one point where I don't think it benefits from reading it straight through because there's just this time jump, and they go from being shocked to see him to being locked up in the hold, and the confrontation, if there was one, is simply gone. Um, I mean, I guess Star Wars tends to do that time jump thing from time to time, but it was jarring to me rereading them. See, the the part in the second issue I liked was in the Hall of Regret where Spinner is talking to him and he goes, uh, he goes, I haven't seen much metal in my this much metal in my life and you're wasting it on lanterns. And the guy's like, it is not the light that has value, human, but what the light reveals. The globe caster reveals images in the ice. And it's kind of like got the, uh, the dwarf uh, moonstone kind of effect. You know, they hold it up and he's like. Images of the past, night or day, every one of us come here to remember what we once did. And as he holds the lights closer, you see, you know, two, you know, basically a Jedi Sith kind of fighting. And uh, Takara, she goes, uh, ah, these people look like they're holding lightsabers, but they're not Sith. And, and you know, the, uh, what the heck is the, the chick? Is it Kaliska? Kaliska. And Kaliska goes, the story begins not with Sith, but with fallen Jedi and a gathering of such warriors nearly 4,000 years ago. At the Battle of Korobos, many powerful figures fought. And this is, you know, what you were mentioning. That tie-in, I found that was just really cool. I I had not expected that, because I remember when we were reading, you know, the collected stories, and we had the Jedi that had crashed on the planet there and had been hiding away. I thought that was a cool little bit, too. And, and the fact that as this continues to play out, more of, you know, the Doomed, the Doomed, I think, the Doom made this series for me. You know, the, the way that they factored into everything and the way that that fed into Kesh the planet and its history, I, I thought that was really cool. And, and especially when we get to the aspect of what those bones in the snow were. I mean, it was like a whoa moment. And this series does have a tendency to give those sort of whoa, holy crap kind of moments. As we move into the third issue, we wind up with essentially... Now, this is one of those things that got me, again, probably because this is a comic, not prose. Spinner seems to be, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he, he's a weather vane, essentially. Uh, whatever way the wind is blowing, whoever seems to have the advantage, that's whose side he wants to be on. You know, he's against the Sith. Now he's going on a mission sort of kind of for the Sith, but not really, or at least the, the Lost Tribe and stuff. Uh, he's being sent away, but it's something that might wind up with him being able to be a benefit to them. Oh, he's Drake not <laughs> kind of, yeah. Well, Drapa shows up. Okay, well, now we're going to work with Drapa. Oh, wait, Drapa's killing all of my people. Well, that's okay, as long as it's because he wants to raise all of us up. But no, as soon as he says, no, um, he doesn't want to lead them, well, I think he's kind of crazy, and maybe I'm going to wind up joining back up with Takara, and so on. I mean, he is constantly waffling, and I guess that's meant to be his characterization. But it feels like a lack of character on his part. I mean, he he has little characterization of himself he has little to provide and uh, from a character standpoint um internally for him he's always moving with whatever's outside and i don't know it, it feels 
odd, you know, like, and we, and eventually we're going to find that apparently, you know, all this uh, teasing back and forth between him and Takara, well, that's the budding early point of a romance. Who couldn't have seen that coming from the first issue of this series? It's This is the issue where the characterization of Spinner really started to bother me because it felt as though there wasn't much there there. But we get Drapa moving about, um, and actually there was a lot I didn't catch, I guess, the first time. Um, I guess not that I didn't catch it, just it wasn't something I was paying t- too much attention to. There's these comments of, oh, he's remembering, he's remembering, he's remembering. And there's that sense of, okay, what's so bad about him remembering? And of course, by the time we get towards the end, we have the doomed uh, showing up to fight alongside the Lost Tribe against Drapa, who is now leading forces basically made up of spinners, cast off people and such from his uh, village that he grew up in as a slave and such. But apparently that amulet that uh, Sorza Sin gave him, that was supposed to trap him, that he eventually wound up using to help himself, also has apparently a control button on it. Because we get to a point near the end of the issue where he essentially clicks it and draws upon the dark side, and all of these huge Sith Leviathan creatures that were created by Sorza Sin, that he apparently took from Sorza Sin and brought to Kesh on purpose to to have them mature, basically, start rising up from the ground uh, to attack, which, of course, gives this artist another opportunity to draw something that doesn't have much distinct form in a lot of ways anyway, that can be very difficult to uh, uh, get our minds around and envision without some specific artwork, gives it a chance to feel really nebulous all freaking over again. Even more nebulous than the Leviathans appeared back in Jedi Academy Leviathan. But again, we end with the big bang, which is all these Leviathans raising up on Kesh that we never knew were there. Yeah, I remember thinking when I was reading these singly that number three was number four. I was like, there's got to be a whole issue here I'm missing because of that whole jump in that you were saying. I mean, it literally, it's like, okay, wait, what's going on? Why is Depa, uh, why is Depa in charge and why are everybody okay with it? I mean, yeah, that, that I agree 100% that there's something totally messed up in that regard. <laughs> it's like, no, that doesn't work (laughs) yeah i mean it just it it makes for an oddity here i and again i don't think it would be quite as as lackluster is not the word i'm looking for i don't think it, it would feel as chaotic and necessarily as tough to necessarily follow if the art style was a little bit more direct in how it showed things i mean it 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 exaggerates in some places in some places it doesn't in some places it feels I don't know, like they're going for something abstract almost. So we start out, as we move move into issue number four, we've got these Leviathans attacking the members of the tribe and the doomed, and they're using this ability to essentially grab someone and draw in their life force, and in doing so, grab their memories, uh, which is something that, you know, the Leviathans have been described as being able to do. And as it's draining your life force, we wind up finding out through, at least, I mean, I, I think it was in another source too, but we wind up seeing in this series... Uh, through Ileana getting zapped, it basically ages you. It's that tried and true sci-fi trope that I'm not big of, a, not much of a fan of, uh, where you know someone's life energy is being zapped. What is the result? Well, you wind up looking old before your time. And I, there's at least some degree to which that makes a little bit of sense in biology, but not that much. Um, so it's a little bit odd to see that kind of thing back again because it feels kind of stale. Um, but that's what the Leviathans do. So if you're going to use the Leviathans, you know, they'll do that. So he finds out that what he really wants, no, 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 it's not actually in this knockdown, drag out fight. It's not actually that he wants Leviathans. 
It's that the doomed have a ship there. And leave it to Spinner to figure out that when they said before that until, you know, there's no threat, they cannot leave. Until they feel no force, uh, the doomed cannot leave the, uh, the, the pole where they were, uh, the polar ice cap, or cannot leave necessarily um, this life by letting themselves pass away. It's that they can't leave, and that means there's a ship somewhere, so once they are free of the force that they think is a curse, yes, they could actually leave. Um, so there's a ship somewhere left on Kesh, which kind of threw me off because I was always thinking that Kesh, it was the magnetic field of Kesh that caused things not to be able to fly away. I guess it's more that it causes communication disruption so others can't arrive to help them uh, in a sense there. But we get kind of a cool knockdown drag out fight, at least in issue number four. You get um, uh, sort of the, the back and forth of, of Takara is going to kill Spinner. He's going to kill her, but as soon as her uh, mother's in danger. She rushes off to try to fight, and then he rushes in to try to help her. Um, you know, why would she do such a, why would he do such a thing? Oh, of course, it's playing on that budding potential relationship between the two. And by the end, we've got, okay, somebody's got to go back to Tav, somebody's got to stay here, somebody's got to fight Draper, somebody has to do this, somebody's got to do that. And it gets really kind of briefly confusing in the conversation. Who's going to go where? Who's going to do what? Can we please just figure out something and go your separate ways instead of standing there talking yourself in circles about it uh, so that by the time we get to the issue we get the next of course giant reveal which is spinner aboard this buried ship the lost hope that apparently was in some kashiri burial cairns underneath the yeah, palace that, tab that made no sense when when the girl from sky goes yes it's someplace you knew my ancestors hid the last hope in the holiest place known to the kashiri of their time the circle eternal and it's like okay how do you how do you bring a ship in and park it and hide it. That was really hard to swallow. Well, bear in mind, though, I mean, the Kashiri may have known about it, perhaps, or at least some in the ancient time, but they would have had the ship years and years, what is it, millennia prior to the Lost Tribes showing up so, and, and the Omen crashing. So they put it there where the Kashiri would have known about it, and then just by coincidence, apparently, you know, our Lost Tribe decides oh. to set up their stuff on top of the same location, but it strikes me as odd that they wouldn't have checked it out. I mean, Spinner at one point, uh, it's mentioned, and this is something I'd missed as important the first time I read them as individual issues, but I caught it reading them as a whole, um, that Spinner was someone who had tried to break in there before to steal things, and we wind up finding that that's why they send him back to be the one to get inside. Somebody has to take Ileana back. Takara says she wants to, but... Uh, they think that, no, she needs to stay there and lead her mother's forces because they would respect her and be able to do that. So Spinner's going to go back and take Ileana. But wait, Spinner can't be trusted, so so uh, Kaliska's got to fly along with them because she's the one from Sky. So she's got wings and everything. She'll fly along with them. But wait, no, she gets zapped and nailed by a Leviathan. So it's just Spinner with Ileana. So he gets her back. Ileana, uh, old-looking Ileana, winds up being able to go back to Varner as things, you know, all hell starts to break loose. But Spinner winds up sneaking in, as he was intended to do, and he's going to try to steal the ship and leave. I mean, it makes sense, and it works out if you really pay very careful attention. But the end of issue number four feels very chaotic in getting us to the point where issue number five can start. Um, again, something that I think, if this was prose, if this was another, you know, pandemonium-sized prose story, would have gone over better. I mean, I understand the idea of wanting to make this huge knockdown, drag-out, giant fight. Uh, very visual, instead of it being in prose the way that we saw with all the other stuff. I mean, if this is really the end cap, let's make it very bombastic. 
but it doesn't wind up having the effect I don't think that it was meant to. Instead, it it hinders the story rather than helping it. Well, and I even wonder, you know, as an end cap, if this is going to be the end cap, because that's the one thing about The Lost Tribe that appeals to me is that they can continue to tell little stories set in the timeline as they continue to move closer to Fate of the Jedi. You can always get another tale here or there, and I, and I like that. In the beginning of number five is cool because there is literally the scene where I believe it was uh, uh, Jelf's shuttle gets launched up and the, uh, the the bad the bad lord. I can't remember what her name is at the moment. She's in the shuttle and it explodes that whole uh, upside down meteor that marked the time of the, ro- the rot. That image is the first image in issue number five. And I thought that was kind of cool the way they tie it in with what uh, Spinner is doing by stealing the shuttle. That that was really cool, and and I I like the aspect that Drapa was, you know, one of the the first dark Jedi to start founding what it was to be a Sith. I mean, he mentioned that in issue four. I thought that was kind of cool as well. You know, that there were all these different concepts of Sith at play in this one arc. Yeah, and I like the way he sort of plays up this idea that you know what you aren't true Sith, or you aren't true dark Jedi. Um, in that sense, because I have all these powers that I know from back then, and so much of our teachings and such have been lost. Because really, you know, the people who crashed, we can't forget, were essentially slaves of Nagasadal. I mean, these were people who could use the Force and such, but they weren't up there in the high-ranking lords of the Sith. So when it came down to it, you know, they would not have had that level of education in dark side use. So Drapa is way more powerful. It allows him to be a threat to the Lost Tribe even though there are way more of them than there are of him. Um, and, of course, it gives me a, a reason why it's not quite as ridiculous that the entire Lost Tribe fighting against Luke's new Jedi Order and such don't just outright overwhelm everywhere they go, that they still have to at least somewhat act marginally in secret in some cases because they're not on par. This is not, you know, uh, it's it's not Exar Kun coming back. This is not Nagasadao coming back. It's not Drapa coming back. This is the Lost Tribe in Fate of the Jedi, and they're not your daddy's Sith. You know, they are not quite up to par with those others, though certainly given enough time and training, perhaps they could be. That might explain why Crate, you know, wasn't really wanting to hook up with them, it seemed like, um, and was willing to fight against Abeloth and such without coming out and, and recruiting the Ooh. Lost Tribe, minus, of course, um, Vestara and such. No, that that plays well, because in, in issue number three, when Depa unleashes, he's like, let me show you. And he unleashes and blows the tower up. Die, pretenders, die in flames. And the others around him, such such power. Have you ever seen anything like it? No, never. I mean, yeah, that totally plays that up. 100%. No, I, I missed that the first time until you just pointed that out. Of course, as we get into issue number five, we get another of these, wait, what kind of moments? Um, and it's one of these things that I don't think I don't think the dialogue came off the way it was meant to, but it's one of these things that rereading it, I can sort of see as a lie, as a joke or something. Um, we start out, of course, with, you know, the, lo- the last hope, the ship, has been taken by Spinner. He's not quite sure how to fly it. Thankfully, he finds uh, the verbal control so he can just tell it where to go. He manages to get up into space uh, off of the surface of Kesh. He's not sure where he wants to go. But before he can actually go anywhere, he's contacted by Drapa, thanks to a, a communicator that he always kept with him, and basically says, look, you know, I'll trade you. 
You give me the ship so I can leave. You can have this world and rule it in my place, and I'll let Takara, who you seem to care for, live. Of course, Spinner's response basically is, um, I'm going to come back and kick your butt, and then we won't need to worry about this anymore. And we get this uh, kind of bizarre moments where these jagged-edged, hard-to-define Leviathan creatures that are tearing through the city wind up being zapped mostly by him and the ship's cannons. Gotta wonder why the Leviathans were such a big deal in the past, because surely the Jedi finding them had ships with cannons on them. Um, but eventually winds up with... Uh, uh, he kills one of the Levi Le Leviathans, Takara, and Drapa fall onto the ship, and he sets its course for the volcano, the uh, Cessal Spiral, Cessal uh, Spire volcano, it's Caldera, so that it will go inside and essentially destroy it by going inside the uh, a volcano, or at least make it away from their reach, because you would think a ship that with shields could go through an atmosphere could handle a volcano, at least temporarily. Um, but he says, when uh, when zipping along right before Spinner jumps off the ship and takes Takara with him, and it looks to Drapa like Spinner is giving up and taking the deal, so he's able to get inside the ship and thinks he's going to safety when really he's being plunged into the volcano. Uh, Spinner says, um, I'm hovering so you can hear, Drapa. I'm ready to deal. I didn't like your critters on my planet, so I took them out. But it just looked like a bunch of dumb stars up there to me. We've got those here, so if you'll leave, I'll take your deal. Um, I... I, I'm, I think that what we're meant to believe here is that he's lying to trick Drapa into getting aboard the ship and flying accidentally into the volcano to kill himself, and Spinner's trying to escape. Because at least at the beginning, he seems like he really is kind of thinking the stars are cool, he wants to go there, and in the end, he's talking about wanting to go back. So it seems like that dialogue is meant to essentially be a lie. But it's played out in such a way, I mean, it sounds like it's a three-year-old talking. There's just a bunch of dumb stars out there. I don't want to go there anymore. The dialogue there, <laughs> like it, huh? <laughs> it, it fails the drama of the moment. I mean, there's all, there's so many good things about this series in concept and in what it reveals, but I feel like the execution of this series, art-wise, and the way that it plays out, again, maybe because it's not prose, it just feels like it's a great concept with poor execution. It's an A-level concept with C-level execution. And that's another one of those points that bothers me, because it... it is Drapa really going to believe that Spinner is just like, they're just dumb stars. We've got those so. here. I mean, unless, okay, maybe Drapa is so arrogant in thinking these people are below him that he'll believe that kind of thing. But how well, is the audience it's supposed to believe that? Line. Draper, okay, because I, I wanted to reference this as well, because when they when they launch forward and he starts shooting off, Drapa's like, S -s stop, I command, command you. Bless this Spinner, I said stop. And then Takara goes, such, such speed. That's, that's the Southern Ocean in seconds impossible and he goes not from where i come from primitive and and that to me is is where he's coming from and so spinner latches onto that and gives him the primitive answer you know the whole well there's nothing but stars up there boss gee i'm pretty stupid you know i mean I, to me that just you know depa's line right before that next scene set that up to me i thought that worked um but there were other moments like that, too, where, like, Hiltz is running from the Leviathans, and he's all, uh, they tell me you absorb, uh, things, knowledge with these things. Uh, perhaps I could just read you some scrolls instead. No? I mean, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek moments here, but, but yeah, I really think that, that, that Depa's use of primitive and the way he keeps talking to him, 
And what you were mentioning earlier about how they're, you know, they're just not that strong. They've lost all this knowledge. He really does see them as such backwater primitives that that does make sense. And he doesn't even think about the fact that this shuttle could be set to autopilot. And I love how the computer's like, Cecil Spira, Caldra, enjoy your ride. Thank you. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 no. We don't, I, I get the whole idea he would look at them as primitives, but it feels to me, I mean, it, the, the thing that sprung to mind, uh, unbidden when I read this today, was the scene in Spaceballs where Dark Helmet says, put her there, and walks up and just yanks the ring off of Lone Star's finger and says, fool you, or whatever it was. I can't believe you fell for the oldest trick in the book. What's with you, man? Come on. That's what I felt like with Spinner and Draper here. And that's not something I would expect as the pinnacle dynamic moment of this series that's going to end the conflict and set them all on a new path. Uh, I mean, it's it's striking that he's willing to let the ship be destroyed, in theory, uh, in order to destroy Drapa and protect the lost tribe that he had felt like an outcast from, and to protect Takara, who he had sort of this this ongoing clash with. I mean, it almost feels like... I mean, they do this a lot in Star Wars. I've just been rereading the Marvel stuff recently. I just finished recording all the From the Star Wars Library YouTube video stuff for the rest of the Marvel series, though my releases are only on, like, issue 80 or something. And there's a point at which there's this character, Danny, who's a Zeltron, who gets tortured by a Nagai named Den Siva. And after being released by Luke and Kiro in this great uh, three-issue arc that brings Lumaya back in a big way, and the duel with the Dark Lady and reveals that she's Shira and all that stuff, um... After that, he is constantly obsessed with her, seeing something in her that he doesn't see in the Nagai, despite the fact that he had tortured her to break her to bring her to that point. And Danny absolutely hates him and hates the Nagai, thinking that he has killed Kiro, even though Kiro is actually still alive and doesn't want anybody to know. Um, so you get to this point where in issue number 107, the one where you got Luke basically looking like Fabio all the time, like Fabio or, or Stallone in Rambo for some reason, um, they talk about how they're together, not necessarily because they like each other, but because... They can understand each other. And I think that's kind of the thing here is we're getting a sense that, you know, these two sort of understand each other now. But I don't know. The, the, the idea that there's a romantic bond between them, at least at this point in the story, seems a little bit weak to me. And I mean, I guess it says something that he is willing to sacrifice being able to get away from the planet in order to save her along with the Lost Tribe. Um but again, it's it seems like that's a forced thing. I mean, it's kind of like Dark Times, where we're told Das Janir and Ember, they love each other. You love each other, don't you? Really? I didn't get that at all. Here you got a little what? bit of their protective of each other. Maybe they kind of are attracted to each other or something, but you don't get that heavy, you know, he's willing to give up everything you could possibly have for her. It would seem like that would take a deeper love than anything that we're seeing here. I don't know, again... Because we don't get into his head too much, we don't get yeah. the prose that gives us his motivations in more of a third-person limited way. We're, we're limited ourselves into only what we get with the thought balloons and the few uh, narrative balloons we get. But the narrative balloons usually are something to give us background on the culture, not necessarily yeah. on what the characters are thinking here. Well, yeah, and, and I'll get to that, uh, what you're saying about those two. Uh, uh, getting back to, to Depa's believing it, you know, right after he jumped, the uh, Spinner and, and Takara jump off the ship. He gets in and he's like, a planet of fools. Is this what become of my rivals on Korriban too? Ridiculous. And, you know, I think about the fact, okay, this guy's already been captured once in the past. So he's obviously not that bright, you know, but I, I, I don't know. For me, it worked. But then right afterwards, that moment, I think that's the moment where Takara falls for Skinner. 
or Spinner. I, I think I think Spinner has been the Han Solo of this the whole time, and she's the Princess Leia. That's what I was seeing here. And for her, when she goes, she's like, "You, you idiot! You destroyed our way off the planet. Worse, you destroyed your way off this planet." And that's when she realizes that he was willing to even, you know, because he could have left, and he decided to come back. And it dawns on her that he came back for her. At least that's that's what I I picked up out of it. And then, you know, by the time you get to the very end and they're walking down the way, that's kind of the. the the thing I came away with, she was the Leia and he was the Han. I guess so. It's just one of those things that doesn't... Uh, with, with all the other stuff that seems to be going on, it's not something that comes across. And I wonder if maybe we're meant to see some looks between the characters, but the artwork doesn't carry the expressions in a way that we got what we were supposed to be getting from the interaction between those two. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I, I have to admit, though, I do like the, the how it ends and, and Vanner's talking about they come in twos. I liked him and his wife's relationship and, and that dynamic. I thought that was, you know, I loved it in, in the collected book and I love it here in the comics, the aspect of she was the stronger one of the two and how it balanced them out. That was really a cool concept. And to see that kind of like played with there at the end, you know, I, I really like that. They're continuing that theme. I do hope they continue, you know, whether it be in comics down the road or maybe another book here or there, I hope that they, we continue to get more stories of the lost tribe of the Sith. I like it. Uh, you bring up some very good points with the the force use uh, things I hadn't even thought about with Fate of the Jedi that make a lot more sense, especially when we reread this and 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 Depa's reactions to those Sith, their power, their reactions to Depa and his use of the force and the amount of power he had uh, things I hadn't really thought about before that definitely make sense. The writing is right there on the wall if you just want to stop and look and ponder about it. And I'm definitely glad we did because that was something I hadn't thought about before. And I really, it gets me excited for more stories that I hope they tell down the road. Yeah, I'd love to see more of the Lost Tribe of the Sith stuff. John Jackson Miller's creating a great mythology here, but if he's going to do it, I would like to see that come back more in, uh, hopefully, something along the lines of the short stories that we got, maybe even a novel or something, because I'm not sure that comic form, at least with this artist, I'm not sure that it does justice to the concepts that are being brought to the table here. I think this could have been a significantly stronger series with different art and perhaps maybe an extra issue to stretch things out a little bit or uh, maybe more narrative inside the character's head. Something that mm-hmm. that gave us those insights that I felt were lacking here. Uh, I love the Lost Heart well, of the Sith concept. It's just I don't think this necessarily did justice to what we saw before. Well, and, and this was supposed to have been something that was going to go longer. It was a surprise to find out it was only a one-issue arc. I mean, just with this alone... You know, it, it isn't a place where they could continue it in a form, but I was curious as to what the original plan was going to be that they decided to curb short. I mean, granted, this works, but I wonder if they had already other stuff to follow and if this was going to be a longer series or if like Lost Tribe of the Sith status so far, they were going to do another jump forward and tell another arc. Maybe it reached a, what was it they said about Invasion? A satisfying conclusion. So they dropped it. <laughs> Like, ah, uh, John, uh, we just finished your fourth issue, and now uh, we're pretty sure you're done. We're, you, we'll give you one more issue, and you can wrap it up. All right, I guess that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thanks, everyone, for coming and hanging out with us and sharing in the fandom. And remember, you can find our show at www.thestarwarsreport.com, as well as on our Facebook page. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com, as well as iTunes, Zune, and airing on Middle Earth Network Radio. 
Our episodes are also available right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. One of the best ways you can interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, your comments just might be heard on our show. In fact, each month we try to compile our messages and emails and feedbacks, anything that you give us about the show, and we try to give them back to you in a nice, quick little fan feedback episode. So be sure to fire those off. You can email us directly at swbeyondthefilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So, once again, this is Ben Whistler. See, I did that. I let you have your time. And Mark, as well as... Nathan. The EU guru himself. Saying, once again, thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that you'll half understand things being drawn by this artist. Or that the Lost Tribe of the Sith will continue to have more stories. Or that John Jackson Miller will again get a chance to write a comic series that has art that befits the storytelling. Or that John will get a comic series that lasts more than a couple arcs. Ooh, snap of the lightsaber blade.